This is um, from Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse uh, 9. Oh, sorry, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Medallium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are very grateful this morning for your word. We pray that it would be helpful to us. We pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to its goodness and its truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, God gave this commandment to Adam. Of every tree you may eat, this tree you may not. When you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then at the end, when Adam does eat of the tree and they are cast forever from the garden, there's an angel that's put at the entrance to the garden to guard the way to the tree of life. Kind of implying, not kind of implying, implying that there is something to be had in eating the tree of life. That God is barring the way to the tree of life. So knowing these two things, uh, there begins to be this picture that is developing of, of something that we would call a covenant. So the word covenant doesn't appear in Scripture until Noah, when a God makes a covenant with Noah. But the idea of a covenant is here in Genesis. And it's here because a covenant uh, is a, a, a formal agreement between two people, between two parties. Um, and what happened in the garden was the greater party, God, made an agreement with man, right? He had certain conditions that had to be met, which was obedience to his word, do not eat of this tree. And if Adam obeyed, he would receive the tree of life and the inheritance of Eden for all eternity, right? So if Adam would have obeyed in the garden, we would still be in the earth as it was then. The garden would have continued. We would have cultivated the whole earth. We would know Adam and Eve. They would continue to be alive. We would be the whatever generation out from that. Life was promised if conditions were met, if obedience happened. And then punishment was also promised. A curse was promised. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then... Covenants in general have some sort of sign or symbol that seals it. And so you have 
right? At the covenant with Noah, you have the rainbow is given as a sign of the covenant. Um, we think, um, this is not hard and fast, but it seems like the tree of life is that sort of sign for Adam in that he is barred from ever eating from it again and that this idea of a tree of life is all through Scripture and comes back again in the New Jerusalem, that the tree of life is in the midst of the New Jerusalem. That there is something to be had with the sign, the symbol of the tree of life. And so all these pieces, so two parties, God and man, a condition that needs to be met, obedience, promises for keeping it, curses for not keeping it, and a sign are all present. And so even though the word covenant is not used here, that is actually what's occurring. And through the centuries, we have used two terms to describe this covenant. We've called it a covenant of works, because Adam would have had to obey. He would have had to have a work to receive the reward. Uh, We also have called it a covenant of life, because the reward of keeping it was life. Now, I'm going through all this stuff about what a covenant is because Adam failed to keep his covenant, right? He did not meet the obedient requirement of the covenant, and so therefore he fell. Now, there's a second part to this. There is not just covenant going on here, but there's a representative nature of Adam. Uh, The theological term that encompasses this is something called federal headship. I'm not expecting you to know that term, but if you want to sound a little hoity-toity, feel free to use it, just like if you want to sound hoity-toity about the image of God, use the Latin imago dei. Uh, If you want to sound hoity-toity about the covenant representation of Adam, federal headship. And then you'll win lots of friends who read lots of books, and then they'll probably leave you in the dust because it gets rather complicated at times. Um, But federal, we tend to think of as... You know, our federal land, the the nation. But it actually has an older meaning, and that meaning is covenant. That's what it means. So federal means covenant. And head is not uh, like our head, but the idea of a representative head. So we send Mike Braun to the Senate, and he represents us there. He is our head. He is the head of Indiana to the United States Senate Uh, with our other senator, they are our representatives. So federal headship, well, they're the senators, but they represent us. Uh, Federal headship just means covenant representative, that there was a covenant that happened, and we had someone there to represent us in the covenant. This is important, not because you need to know all these technical terms, but because in this thing that happened in the garden... Eternal consequences happened that still affect us, that are still with us now. And in the same way that Adam was our covenant representative, Jesus, who is called the last Adam, is our covenant representative in the exact same way. So we have this great problem. This covenant was made with man, Adam, in the garden. Obey and live. Disobey and die. Adam disobeyed. Now we have this problem that if no one ever obeys, we can never live. And since we have an inherited sinfulness, uh, we are all prone to sin, and therefore we all do sin. 
None of us will ever inherit life because we are all bound by this covenant of works. We have to achieve it. And it's a real problem because none of us can achieve it. But Christ, being our representative covenantal person, says to God, when he is a man, here's the covenant of obedience, the covenant of works that you gave to Adam. It's subscribed now in what at the time would have been the first 39 books of the Bible, the the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. I'm going to obey it perfectly so that all those who are in me, all my posterity, all my children, all my brothers and sisters will be able to enter with me into heaven. Who will be able to defeat the curse of death because they will be made righteous by my obedience. Alright, so that's the formal stuff. I'm going to try and flesh it out so it makes a little more sense. And hopefully you understand why it matters for us. Okay, so that's the, that's the big picture. Now let's talk about inheritance for a minute. Okay? Everyone knows about, talks about, has lived through good and bad inheritance situations, either personally or people you know. And inheritance we understand very well. There's good inheritance and there's bad inheritance. And we fight over both of them, right? If it's a good inheritance, many millions of dollars, the kids fight over the many millions of dollars and how it's divided up. And, you know, you got that tea set, and I didn't get that tea set. I got the silverware, and blah, 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 on down the line. It doesn't matter. If there's stuff, we fight about it. Now, there are exceptions. So if you were the exception of the family and you didn't fight, good on you. But the reality is we all fight over the good inheritance. We also always fight over the bad inheritance, right? The double mortgaged house, the fact that the car is like two weeks shy of being repossessed, um, and the house is run down, and it's, you know, you got $50,000 in credit card debt, and all of a sudden, at death, the children have inherited a lot of problems. And so the fight is usually not who gets to keep the inheritance, but who has to deal with the inheritance? We don't want a bad inheritance. So we try to push it off, right? You can deal with it. You were named the executor. Have fun. Good luck. See you later, right? So we get this idea of inheritance. We understand it. We also understand this idea of physical DNA sort of inheritance, biological inheritance. Um, so you can inherit good or bad teeth from your parents, right? And you didn't do anything to inherit that. It just came to you when you were born. You got good or bad teeth. You got good or bad back. You got good or bad feet. You got all kinds of things that you had no say in at all. Nor did your parents. You just got them. They're part of who you are. They came from beyond you, way back. And you can start tracing it as far back as you want. And you might be able to find the first guy who had this particular gene mutation that caused this, whatever. It doesn't matter. We understand the biological aspect of inheritance. Now, let's go back to Adam, our covenant head our covenant representative. 
We inherit from Adam good things. The image of God, which we spent four or five weeks talking about, is an inheritance that comes to us through Adam. We have the image of God because we were born as humans and not as birds. Right? Birds do not have the image of God. Humans have the image of God. We owe that to the fact that Adam had the image of God and he passed it on. That's a good inheritance. And we fight over that sometimes. Right? We fight over what does it mean to be in the image of God. Uh, you know, that guy isn't quite up to snuff. Right? This is uh, behind most wars is a dehumanizing, which is actually just a devaluing of the image of God in somebody else. The theological reason that we fight is we devalue the image of God in somebody. So we get high and mighty on our own horse that we are better than someone. Inherently, what we're saying is they're not as good of a person as we are. They don't hold the image of God high enough. And so this is what we fight about in the good inheritance. And there are other things that we inherit that are good, right? What's this? Ambidextrous thumbs, right? That's a good inheritance, right? We are able to do things that other animals, most animals, are not able to do, um, except for raccoons and, like, apes. Uh, We can do things. That's a good inheritance. We have inherited legs and we're able to walk places. We've inherited this unbelievable thing called a brain, which we have done unbelievable things with, with our hands and our feet and our brains. Those are good things. We have also inherited very, very bad things from Adam. And it's not just, uh, it's not, it's obvious in one sense, but we regard it with enough hatred that we don't ever want to think about it deep enough. We inherit death from Adam. Right? If Adam had not eaten and disobeyed, then we would not die. Adam would not have died. I think, I've probably said this from the pulpit, and if not, I've probably said it to at least some of you, because I think about it often. Our inheritance to our children means something. And I'm not talking about physical, monetary inheritance, I'm talking about spiritual inheritance. And I think of the fact that, like, my dad was the first believer in his family. And now, we're talking three generations down. My kids, hopefully one day, will be my age and serving the Lord. My nieces and nephews. That's a spiritual inheritance that is hard to quantify. Now think of Adam and the spiritual consequence of his sin. So here he is, 900 years old, 30 years before his death. Um, He's only about two generations off from Noah. So Adam and Noah's dad may have known each other. Okay? Think about that. Adam lived to be 930 years. Lemek, uh, Noah's father, just barely crosses over in the timeline. So there's a real possibility that Noah was one generation off from knowing Adam. This is so crazy to think about, that Adam was holding on his knee his great, 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 great 15, 20 generation grandson or granddaughter, 
And he's looking at them, and they're cooing, and it's great, right? They're the age of Isaac. You know, just, it's wonderful. And then all of a sudden, this flash will come over Adam, 900 years old. He's going to die one day. He's going to die one day because of me. He's not going to live forever. He might not die the way his older brother, Abel, died. But he will die. And I will die. Everyone's going to die. This inheritance of death, this inheritance of the curse, is something we just don't like to think about. Because what it means is that somewhere along the lines... There's a double reason that we die. We die because of our own sins, but we also die because of Adam's sin. So this is Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Death came to us and sinfulness came to us, the sin nature by way of inheritance. We inherit a corruptness in our nature. It comes to us at birth. There's lots of arguments about when we are imbued with a soul, how we are imbued with a soul. Don't ever get into an argument about how and when we are imbued with a soul. It only leads to dismay. But at some point in conception, we are, we are made a full human given a soul. But our flesh, whatever, however we understand this concept between flesh and soul, uh, corrupted soul, f- corrupted flesh, whatever happens there, something is broken. And it's broken because Adam was our representative. When he died, he passed down a broken, corrupted soul. However that works. To everyone who's ever lived. And we know this is true if we know the gospel. We might not like it and it might be uncomfortable for us. But the only way to not be corrupted and dead in our sins is to what? Be born again. Into a new family line. To be given an uncorrupted soul and flesh. That we know that at some point if you're a Christian. New happened. And old was put away. That there is a reality that we didn't do that. We didn't do that. We couldn't do that. We were corrupt. And so we know this is true when we talk about what it means to believe in Jesus, have faith in Christ, that this new birth has to happen. But we don't like to think about this old dead birth, this old Adam's um, sin and death inheritance because it's bad it's not good 
And so we fight over it. We want to say, it's not mine. It doesn't belong to me. And we do this in a couple of different ways. One, we play down the fact that many of our impulses are bad. Many of our, just what we think, what pops into our head, first among many things, is bad. We do this because we don't like to think that actually we think a lot of bad things all the time. And so we play down this inherited side of the sin of Adam. Uh, I jokingly talk about it a lot, but it is a very serious thing uh, that more often, not more often than not, but very often, even Christians have this sin that dwells within them fighting against the righteous new creation that they are. This is, so Romans 5 was where I read from. Romans 6 about continues this theme. And then Romans 7 is this fight that happens inside the Christian. Um, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. And so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Why do we die? Did that which is good, the law, bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment that sin might, be, that might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold under sin. I don't understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want... It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I come to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That for us it's important to remember that sin doesn't become less. Well, let me put this a different way. We may sin less as we grow in Christ. But sin should produce in us a greater and greater abhorrence. A greater and greater hate. A greater and greater 
anger in ourselves against sin. That there is this guttural reaction against what's happening inside us whenever things happen. And so this is going to happen, right? We're going to the holidays. We're going to see family and friends. There will be something said. And there will be an instant, instant reaction inside you. And you will know what you ought to do. And you will know how you ought to feel. And you will know what you ought to say. And some of us will say the right thing. Some of us will not. Some of us will begin to try and correct our thinking, and some of us will not. And some of us will begin to try and take captive this fleshly desire that just grew up within you when you heard that little thing, and you just thought, Wake up to that reality. Not because I want you to just go all the time being morbidly introspective, But we deny the fact that we are sinful in a very, very real way that needs to be put to death. We give sin a leg up by not just acknowledging the fact that there is a very real war being waged inside us. And it's because we don't like to acknowledge the fact that sin was a part of us and remains a part of us until we die. We don't like our inheritance from Adam. And so we are reticent to acknowledge it. It's the same thing that happens if you come from, quote unquote, a bad family, right? So you don't like to acknowledge certain members of your family or your family in general. This happens all the time. We all know people who just never talk about their past. And the reason they never talk about their past is because they don't want to acknowledge that they have a past because it's bad. And sometimes we acknowledge it with them. Like, yeah, that's like whatever happened was awful. And you don't have an obligation to go back to that thing. But we do have an obligation to continually tell others and tell ourselves that we come from a bad, corrupted stock. It's not good. We get some good inheritance. We get the image of God from Adam, but we also get this corrupted broken sinfulness from Adam. That before we ever do a sin, we are a sinner. It's in us. It's our nature to do these things. And we have a major problem then that has no other solution than we need a new covenant representative, a new head, a new someone to represent us before God, to fix what is corrupted in us. And this is why the gospel is so incredibly different than every other religion on the planet. Every other religion says to you, when those desires well up, suppress them, don't do them, contain them, and try to live this side of them. And if you do that, you will have overcome. And now, every religion does this to some extent. So, for instance, Islam... Islam, they believe that there are two angels. I mean, you know the cartoon, two angel thing, where you have like a good angel, bad angel? Did you know that's, that's just Islamic faith? That they actually, that's a tenet, a belief of them. There's actually a good angel and a bad angel. The good angel urges you to do good things. bad angel urges you to bad things. And if you can somehow scale out at the end of your life and you've done more good things and not as many bad, see, which way would it be? 
more good things and not as many bad things, that Allah will allow you to be into paradise. Now, it gets a little squirrely because Allah basically has the power to override your good works anyway. But the general extent of the faith is basically good works over bad works. That somehow, some way, they're going to outweigh them. Well, here's the problem with that. God will not abide by any sin, not just a few. The scale doesn't work because any sin will keep you from the kingdom of heaven. Any sin. Because you have to keep it perfectly, just as Adam would have had to keep it perfectly, just as Christ did keep it perfectly. Now, go to something like Buddhism or Confucianism or any of the ones that have some sort of, like... uh, higher reality that we attain. Most of them are built on suppression of desire. That the goal of life is to just press everything down as far as you can. And when you've done that, you will be enlightened. And then you'll accede to the next higher thing. Whatever it is, and whatever, you know, Hindu, Buddhism, they have different levels. And so the, the, the whole thing is just to press it down. Now the problem with this is, sin is not something that can be contained. We just read that in Romans 7. I don't want to do the things I do do. The things I want to do, I don't do. It just keeps exploding out. It just keeps... It doesn't matter how much I press. It just... There it is. There it is. There it is. That one little thing. That one little... That that one. That's the one that always pushes my button. And I always... You can't press sin into a box. It cannot be contained. It will come out. This is a major problem. All the other world religions have this, well, the Eastern religions that deal with this in this way, this compression idea, this suppressing of all desires. It's impossible. It cannot be done. And anyone who's honest with themselves knows this, because no matter how far down you press it, you may be able to contain your, retain possession of your tongue, But your mind is not pure, and it never has been, and it never will be. Christ, however, Christ, however, doesn't deal with it in this suppression sort of way. He doesn't say, just get down the sin. He was righteous, and so when we believe in Christ, there's this huge switcheroo that happens called justification. Where Christ, being our representative, obeyed perfectly all the time his whole life. Something we cannot do because we can't suppress sin. And when we believe, when we're born again, he says to us, here is my righteousness. It's yours because I represent you to the Father. Just as Adam represented you before the Father, I represent you before the Father. And you get to inherit everything. Just like in Adam, you inherit everything, the good and the bad. On Christ, you inherit only good because there is only good. These two things, the old nature of Adam and the new nature of Christ, are at war until the end, when he comes or you die. And it's very important for us to keep a hold of this because it will do a few things for us. One, it will keep us very humble when we see other people struggling with sin. Because we will pity them. Right? Oftentimes what happens when we see someone struggling with sin is a sort of 
derisive sideways glance. You know, that kind of thing. And what they're doing, you, you can watch this happen. This is much of modern psychology is based on this too. Just, just keep a hold of it. Get a hold of yourself, man. Get a hold of yourself. Just squeeze it. Don't, don't let it out. Hold it tight. And then, right? So a lot of addictions counseling ends this way, right? Just don't deal with the fact that we're sinners. Just kind of get a hold of your desires, rework it a little bit, and then it doesn't work, right? The, uh, uh, what's it called? Re-something. Recidivism. Recidivism rate, which is the rate of like going back to the thing for something like meth addiction, is something upwards of 90 to 95%. 90 to 95% of people who use meth will use meth again. And yet, what we do is we just kind of sideways glance at them and just go, yeah, just keep pushing it down, keep pushing it down. We never give them the good news that they're never going to be able to do that. They will never be able to suppress this undeniable urge within them unless they have a new nature. Something new within them. It has to be that way. This whole thing has to go. Their old self has to go. And then they will be able to wage war in a way that wins. Because even though there is this war waging within the Christian, do's and don'ts, and I want to do and I don't want to do, it's a battle until we die, here's the good news. Christ's side is stronger in the Christian. Always. And so where you could tell a meth addict without Christ, just stop it. Right? And some of them, 5% of them, will be able to stop it. 95% of them won't. With a Christian, true Christians, whatever the sin problem is, However addictive and dispilitating and destroying its effect, every Christian, every Christian who is engaged in this battle, which is difficult, will always be a victor because Christ is stronger. The new life is actually better. It is actually victorious. And so we have this huge idea, this federal headship, right? But the practical reality of it is this. When you're born, you inherit this sinful nature, this sinful flesh. And you do all kinds of bad stuff. You must be born again, right? Born what? Born into a new family lineage with a new inheritance. And then, when you have that new inheritance, no matter how bad the old one was, how messed up it was, how much it destroyed your life, the new one will be victorious. It's stronger. It's better. It's of a more lasting substance. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept for you. That's the new nature. That's the new thing that happens. And they're only, it's only possible because someone represents us to God. We don't represent ourselves. Adam was our, a representative before God. And he disobeyed and we inherited his death. 
Christ was our representative before God and he obeyed and therefore represents us in his life. And that gives us unbelievable hope. Unbelievable hope that we do not have otherwise. We have this war that rages within us that without Christ is unwinnable, will destroy you, and you will never see God. With Christ, that war is not only winnable, it has been decisively won. You will taste victory. And so when we talk about sin, and it's a little bit depressing, and we come here each week and we confess every week, we take time to confess together, we take time to confess alone, we encourage confession through the week, it can be very depressing to think about all the things that you have done against our Lord and Savior every single week, every day. It's very depressing. It's Romans 7. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God who saved us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks be to God. And so we go and we sing things like, uh, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And we sing it with true hearts going, yeah, I mean, I, listen, even now, even in this battle now, I feel like I'm losing half the time. Give me hope for the future. And so we do have hope. Christ is not just the second Adam, he's the last Adam, he is the better Adam. He is the victorious one who in every way superseded what Adam should have done and did it perfectly, willingly, happily. And still now, from now until eternity, he will continue to do it for us. He will keep us. And this is the hope of the gospel. This is why we come each week, even though before this morning you probably didn't know the words federal headship, covenant representation. That's what gives us the whole basis of the gospel. If, if Christ doesn't represent us, we have no hope. We have no hope. Because we cannot do it. We can't earn our way there. We can't suppress sin enough. We need a totally new thing. A new birth. A new creation. A new inheritance. A new representative before God. Amen? Alright, let's, let's stand this morning. We're going to sing... Rick, do you want to come and lead us? Um, come thou fount of every blessing. And I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to sing. Go ahead and sing.